The text for the sermon this morning is taken from the book of Psalms, Psalm 29. Let's read that psalm together, Psalm 29, a psalm of David. Give unto the Lord, O you mighty ones, give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due to his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord splinters the cedars of Lebanon. He makes them also skip like a calf. Lebanon and Syrian, like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord divides the flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forests bare. And in his temple, everyone says glory. The Lord sat enthroned at the flood, and the Lord sits as king forever. The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. After the proclamation of the word, we will respond by singing from Psalm 29, stanzas 2 and 3. Any quotations in the sermon are taken from the ESV, Bible quotations, that is, So it might not be the same as in your Bible. Brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, and boys and girls, perhaps you recall a time when you were very much afraid of a loud clap of thunder. For a small child, a thunderstorm can be a frightening thing, especially at night. You suddenly wake up because of an unexpected clap of thunder. Maybe you pull the blankets over your head and hope the storm will go away, or if you're particularly brave, you'll crawl out of bed and run over to your parents' bedroom. It's a little safer there. But even then, you might not feel completely safe. Psalm 29 is a psalm that describes a thunderstorm, but congregation, it's not a psalm that's just about thunder and lightning. It's a psalm about our Lord, our God, Yahweh, and the voice of the Lord. In Hebrew, the word for voice is kol, but the same word can also be taken as a word for thunder. And seven times in this psalm, we we are confronted with this phrase, kol Yahweh. So, the voice of the Lord. It's a psalm that's sometimes called the psalm of seven thunders. And in this psalm, It speaks about the true God of heaven and earth. It describes his sovereignty and his power. It uses the description of a thunderstorm to bring that truth across. In the past, many people were very suspicious and superstitious of thunder. Today, modern man has lost his fear of thunder and lightning. Instead, people even seek to control thunderstorms and other weather 
scientists and meteorologists. They even fly specially equipped airplanes into the eye of a hurricane to do research there. They want to gain knowledge of the weather so they can better understand how nature works. And that's fine, that's good, but it must be done in order to honor and glorify the God who is in control of these storms. Now, in the time of David, who wrote Psalm 29, things weren't a whole lot different than today. People still worship what is created rather than the Creator. And in this psalm, David addresses the mighty ones, and he urges them to give glory to God, the God of heaven and earth. That's the theme for the sermon, give glory to the Lord Almighty. And before we go any further, we need to ask ourselves, who is David addressing here? Who are the mighty ones? The psalm begins by saying, ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Other translations use the phrase mighty ones, and in the original language it says sons of gods. And this phrase comes up elsewhere in the Old Testament, sometimes in the context of those who are assembled in heaven. For example, we read in Psalm 89, let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies above can be compared to the Lord? Who among the sons of gods is like the Lord? And the phrase is also used in the context of comparing God to false gods. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who among the mighty ones is like you, O Lord? And the prophecies of of Daniel also use this phrase in 11 verse 36. There we read, the king will do as he pleases. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god the God of gods. Same phrase. And in this psalm, then, David is calling on all the mighty ones, all those who have power on earth, whether angels or great kings, to worship and serve the Lord. Every power that you can imagine, every kind of force that exists, every kind of force that the pagans worshipped must bow to the Lord of all the earth. The call to worship The Lord, then, was no less radical in David's time than in our day and age. In our culture, there are also many people who worship false gods. For example, people worship the god of time. They say, eons of time, that's all that's needed to bring the world into existence. Or they serve the god of chance. They attribute creative power to chance, something that doesn't even exist. Others serve Mother Nature. That's what happens when people don't know the Lord God who created the heavens and the earth. That's also what happens when people don't want to know the Lord God, the creator of heaven and earth. People who don't want to submit to the Lord of heaven end up suppressing the truth, as Paul writes in Romans 1. In their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth, even though what can be known about God is very plain for them to see because what can be known about God has been shown and is being shown in creation. God's eternal power, His divine nature is clearly visible if only people are willing to open their eyes to see it. And this was also true in the time of David, of course. The nations around Israel served many different gods. 
And when you start studying Psalm 29, you find out that the psalmist is comparing the most prominent pagan god in Canaan to the Lord Almighty. I'm sure you are familiar with the name of Baal. The Canaanites worshipped Baal. He was the god of fertility. He controlled rain and storms. And in Canaanite culture, he was also associated with thunder. He was sometimes called the thunderer or the god who rides on the clouds. Apparently, Baal held, had seven arrows of lightning in his quiver. And thunder would resound every time he would shoot an arrow. He was also the god of war. And scholars have even found ancient Canaanite hymns which contain similar phrases, same phrases as Psalm 29. <clears throat> now, many Bible critics, of course, claim that the, the Israelite author of this psalm simply took over some pagan poetry to describe Yahweh. It's rather ironic, isn't it, congregation, that people are quick to dismiss the authenticity of the Bible, as if David and other Jewish writers did not have the gifts of poetry and language, but at the same time, they are just as quick to accept ancient non-biblical sources as verifiable. It really shouldn't surprise us at all that David would use language familiar to his culture, familiar to the people around him, to show who the real God of heaven and earth is, especially when this psalm addresses the very culture of his day. And so it's no coincidence that in this psalm, the phrase, Kol Yahweh, the voice of the Lord, is heard seven times. What the psalmist is doing here is, is taking things that the nations around Israel attribute to their God, in particular to the God Baal, and he is proclaiming the sovereignty of the Lord of heaven and earth, the God of all creation. And he begins by calling all people to worship this God. All the heavenly beings, all the sons of gods, all who have power in heaven or on earth are called to worship God. Three times we read this phrase, ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. And this threefold call to ascribe glory to the Lord climaxes in a call to worship Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Now to worship means to bow down. To bow with your face to the ground. To humble yourself. To, to fall down in homage. And that phrase, in the splendor of holiness, could also be translated with the words garments of holiness which is why some older translations use the phrase in holy array. The same wording is used in other places in Scripture to describe the garments of worshipers. Psalm 110, verse 3, for example, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. So the psalmist is urging us to give God the glory due his name. And this isn't a choice. It is his due. The Lord is not one God from many that we can pick and choose from. We can decide whether or not we should honor Him. No, He is the only God. The God who reveals Himself to His people as Lord, as Yahweh, the covenant God. This is the most significant name, personal name, in the Old Testament that we come across. But we also come across this name in the New Testament. 
For example, in the well-known I am sayings of Christ in the Gospel of John, Christ makes a direct reference to this name, for example, when he tells the Jews, before Abraham was I am. And the book of Revelation to John also makes reference to this name. Yahweh means the one who always was, the one who always will be, the one who is. And we find the meaning of that name reflected in Revelation chapter 1. Those are very familiar words to us because we, we are greeted with those words every Sunday afternoon. The one who is and who was and who is to come. And so because of the significance of this name, the Lord Jesus Christ is also connected to this psalm. And in this psalm, the voice of Yahweh is connected to God's almighty power and his strength in creation. And by this means, we are confronted with his majesty, the majesty of Yahweh, the triune God. Now, brothers and sisters, in contemporary Christianity, God's majesty is often overlooked or even ignored. Among many Christians today, God is recognized as an awesome God, the God who can help you, the God that you can go to with your problems and your difficulties. You can bring your requests before Him. He's there for you when you need Him. But so often, the relationship with God is simply reduced to a a Jesus and me relationship. How often do we really stand still and think about the majesty of God? At Mount Sinai, the people trembled in fear When God appeared in fire and thunder and smoke and lightning, the mountain shook with the presence of God. They recognized the omnipotence, the majesty, the power of their God. Do we recognize Yahweh for who He is? Do we adore Him and worship Him simply for who He is? Would we tell someone else to worship the Lord because the voice of the Lord is in the towering waves of a tsunami, or the voice of the Lord is is in the hurricane? Do we worship God because He moved Mount Everest with an earthquake so that it's permanently shifted? Do we know whom we worship? And do we recognize that worship is adoration? It's recognizing that God is majestic. He is far above us in glory and in majesty. But today in contemporary Christianity, the trend is to, to meet God as a friend. To feel close to God on your own terms. To, I feel closest to God when, when I'm out in, in nature, camping maybe, because that way I can just meet God the way I want to, for example. But notice how this psalm calls us to appear before God in the splendor of holiness, in garments of holiness. God's people had to consecrate themselves before they were allowed to come into the presence of God at Mount Sinai. And the high priest was only allowed to go into the Holy of Holies once a year to sprinkle blood on the on the Ark of the Covenant. And you can be sure he didn't stay there any longer than was really necessary. But we are allowed to come into the presence of Almighty God. Every Sunday again when we come together as God's people to worship Him. 
Are we aware of that? Do we think about that? Are we aware that what happens here on Sunday is a special and unique event? Here we are greeted with God's blessing at the beginning of the worship service. We leave with His benediction laid upon us. Here the voice of the Lord speaks to us through the proclamation of the gospel. Here the sacraments are administered. And here we we respond to God in, in song and in prayer. Are we aware, brothers and sisters, that what we experience in corporate worship is the closest thing that compares to worship in heaven? And then the question is, how do we come before God in garments of holiness? Of course, that refers, first of all, to coming before God in humility and in repentance. Being clothed in garments of humility and not garments of pride. Consecrating oneself for worship is, first of all, a spiritual attitude. So we must consecrate ourselves for worship both spiritually and physically. For we confess that we serve God with body and soul. Psalm 24, for example, urges worshipers to ascend the hill of God with clean hands and a pure heart. And so let's not think that the requirement of wearing festive garments is just old-fashioned stuff from the Old Testament. Has God changed? Has His majesty changed? Has His glory changed? Let's not make the mistake of thinking that God is like us. God doesn't think it's cool when we treat Him casually. Because God is not cool. God is holy. He is majestic. And God is not our, our pal. He is Almighty God. And He is our Heavenly Father. But He is far above us in splendor and in majesty. And He rules. He rules supreme over all creation. So let's not worship an image of God that we've made up in our own minds, brothers and sisters. <clears throat> and that means that when we go to our closets on Sunday morning, we should ask ourselves, why am I putting on what I'm putting on? Am I thinking about what I want to look like, or am I thinking about worshiping in the image of Christ? You see, we have to approach God in the light of who He is. Think about what John saw in his visions on the island of Patmos. In chapter 4, we read that the 24 elders threw themselves down before the throne of God and the four living creatures did not cease to sing day and night, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. God is holy and majestic. And to impress this upon us, the psalmist goes on to describe a thunderstorm as, as it's moving across Palestine, the land where he was living. Perhaps it would have seemed more natural for David to speak about the mighty hand of the Lord or the strength of God's arm, but David doesn't do this. He tells us that the voice of the Lord is the power behind the storm. Just as he did when he created the earth, God only needs to speak and it happens. And when, when God's voice is heard, things start to happen. Seven times the poet tells us of the power of that voice. 
Seven times we hear the voice of God thundering over the earth, so to speak, shaking the earth to its core. The Lord's voice moves and shakes earth and heaven. So as this storm, it comes over over the waters of the Mediterranean, across the coastal plains of the land, and over the mountains of Lebanon, and it, it passes over the entire land and spreads out over the wilderness in the south desert of Judea. And in its wake, it leaves destruction and ruin. Even, even Mount Syrian is said to run and skip like a young wild ox. And we know from Deuteronomy 3 verse 9 that Syrian is Mount Hermon. In the northern part of Israel, it's the highest mountain in the land. It usually is covered with snow all year round. And according to Canaanite mythology, this was the dwelling place of Baal. But the dwelling place of this God of seven thunders is under the sovereign control of the God of the voice of the Lord. We hardly need to have a description of a thunderstorm, do we? We've experienced them ourselves. We, in this province, quite regularly, we know that thunder can shake our homes, it can rattle our windows, and wind and rain reshape the ground. A storm can, can literally move stones and fling rocks around like, like tumbleweed. Trees are ripped out of the ground, they're scattered around like matchsticks, and nothing but splinters are left. It's meant to inspire us with awe and reverence. When God speaks, the world must listen. We have no choice. Even unbelievers fear the power of God in in nature, though they don't acknowledge Him. So when God thunders over the earth, we stand in awe of His power and His glory. Now I realize, brothers and sisters, that today we understand that the sound of thunder is caused by lightning, the heat of lightning, we can give it a scientific explanation. A bolt of lightning heats the air to about 50,000 degrees Fahrenheit, according to my research, which is three times hotter than the surface of the sun. And then when the heated air cools, it produces a vacuum, the surrounding air falls into that vacuum, and that produces the crack of thunder. But let's not think that we can just give this a scientific explanation and then leave it at that. We don't have to make a choice either between wondering if thunder and lightning are the results of natural phenomena or the work of God, because we know that the Creator is behind it all. Throughout Scripture, then thunder is equated with the voice of God. And there are, there are far too many references in Scripture linking God's voice to thunder for us to ignore that. On the day of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, for example, he was teaching in the temple, and a voice was heard from heaven in answer to Jesus' prayer, and the people said that it thundered. And it's no coincidence that in Revelation 10, the voice of God is referred to as the seven thunders. I'm not trying to say that every time we hear, experience a thunderstorm, we have to think that God is trying to speak to us. But do we ever consider that thunder is the voice of God? And why should we consider this? Because when we do, we will be considering what many people perhaps don't think about, maybe we don't even think about, and that is the majesty of our God. Do we understand how majestic He really is? Do we understand that He is so grand 
and tremendous and magnificent and wonderful and glorious and mighty and sovereign and autonomous and fearful and good and perfect and holy, that he is totally and completely unapproachable to sinful people. Do we understand that? Do we, do we think about that? The people of Israel certainly understood that and felt that when they were at the foot of Mount Sinai. And we need to recognize this as well, congregation. But we forget all too easily. And so we need to be reminded of who God is. And this psalm helps us to remember that God is altogether different, other. He is different from us. He is a God to be feared. And therefore, we must humble ourselves before Him. And that's the purpose of this psalm. And the purpose of showing this this thunderstorm in words. We need to learn to fear the Lord. And then there, there are two possible outcomes, reactions, two possible responses to witnessing this thunderstorm. Thunder and lightning strike fear into our hearts. I'm sure anyone who has experienced a severe thunderstorm can attest to that. Right? It breaks cedars. It tears mountains apart. It flashes forth flames. It, it shakes your, and rattles your house even. You don't want to get caught outside in a severe thunderstorm. But there is beauty in a storm as well. There's also something magnificently fascinating about a thunderstorm. To watch an approaching thunderhead as it, as it slowly comes over and, and then breaks out over you, turning the night sky brighter than day. There's there's something awesome about that, even captivating. It gives us a small glimpse of God's power and might. And then there's only one meaningful reaction, which is also expressed in this psalm. The psalm says, in God's temple, everyone cries glory. That's the only reaction that God's people can give. We must realize how small and insignificant we are, and the only response is glory. That's all we can do. We can only fall on our knees in worship. And then we also receive the peace of God. That's how the psalm ends. May the Lord bless His people with peace. It began with glory to God in the highest, and the psalm ends with peace on earth with whom God is well pleased. The peace of God. What a contrast to the devastating power of a storm. God's people find peace in the quiet of the temple. You see, God doesn't need a storm to get our attention, does he? Think of Elijah when he ran into the wilderness. He experienced a storm, he experienced thunder and earthquake and fire, but God came to him in a quiet voice, the voice of peace and tranquility. It was as if Elijah was there in the safety of a temple. And what's so special about God's temple? That it shelters from the storm? Well, that's where the Ark of the Covenant was. From there, God's mercy and grace were dispersed to His people. There, the high priest could make atonement for Israel, and God's people received atonement for their sins. In the temple, they were protected from the devastating storm that had been unleashed by our first parents in paradise the storm which threatened to undo all of us. 
With the same God whose voice thunders in the heavens, he protects us from the storm of sin and Satan. It was the same voice that spoke to Adam and Eve after they rebelled. In the Garden of Eden, God's voice called to his rebellious children, and his voice promised them a Savior who would bring peace on earth. And that peace was delivered when God sent his one and only Son, the Word who became flesh to conquer the storm that sin and Satan had unleashed on the world. And the voice of that Son continues to reverberate throughout the world. By Him, the Father created all things. And when He was on earth, He demonstrated the power of Yahweh. Because when He spoke, the blind received their sight. When He spoke, the dead were raised. When Christ, who is the Word of God in the flesh, when He spoke, the wind and the waves and the storm obeyed Him. Christ came to proclaim peace to God's people. When he spoke, people heard the gospel. And that peace was proclaimed loud and clear when he won the victory over the storm of sin. When on the cross, he conquered death and rose from the grave. He has made it possible, congregation, for us to live without having to fear the storms of life, whether those are thunderstorms or the storms brought about by the effects of sin. In Christ Jesus, we have been blessed with the peace of God. Peace of God is what God gives to those who trust Him and fear Him. Peace is knowing that God's in control, also of the thunderstorms of this life. Peace is knowing that we're not cut off from God's care and His love. Peace is knowing that we are safe in Jesus Christ. And today the voice of God is heard Wherever the gospel is proclaimed, the voice of Jesus Christ is heard wherever the gospel is proclaimed. And the way to peace is by listening to the voice of our Savior. Through him we may come into the presence of Almighty God. And someday, brothers and sisters, God's children will hear the voice of Jesus Christ ushering them into the eternal kingdom of God. What a day that will be. And in the meantime... We are called to know Him, to love Him, to obey Him, to honor Him, to adore Him, to worship Him, to ascribe to the Lord the honor, do His name, and to worship Him in the splendor of holiness. Amen.